You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 290. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the show. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I am your host, Andrew. And I am joined by my lovely and wonderful wife, Anitra. That's me. And we are going to bring you an episode that is 10 away from 300. Like everything in me <laughs> is like, holy cow, that is so close. Um, Yeah. Uh, spoiler alerts. We were both individually at PAX East this weekend. I so went that's for... what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's not yeah. a spoiler. That's what we're going to talk about. Well, but as I'm talking to people there who are newer in the industry, I'm like, so we've been doing this for seven years. We've been doing this for, holy cow. Yeah. yeah that's much it's been it a while. Like. So it's 290. Yes. And I have a fact. Yes. So this is kind of a repeat fact. Kind of. But unfortunately... It is a timely fact. Longtime listeners of the Family Gamers might remember episode 225. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, they're not going to... Okay, come on. <laughs> I mean, but when I talk about this fact, they'll be like, I think I've heard about this before. Anyway, in episode 225, my fact was talking about the Antonov AN-225, the biggest plane in the world. Now, 225 was, you know, 65 episodes ago, so it was over a year ago. So let me just revisit uh, let's see, the Antonon AN-225, biggest plane in the world. There is only one of them, and it is gigantic. Okay. It can carry 250 tons of freight. That's 500,000 pounds of freight. Wow. It was about 275 and a half feet long. Okay. Its wingspan was 290 feet. Ah. And there's your 290. There there you go. Okay. Just think about that for a minute. Its wingspan is one football field wide, pretty much. That's huge. That's real big. That's really, really big. Unfortunately, I said this is timely. Unfortunately, it is timely because the Antonov AN-225 is a Ukrainian plane, and it was destroyed by the Russians when they took over the airfield where it was being kept. Oh. The Ukrainians have pledged to rebuild the Antonov AN-225 and make Russia pay for it. All right. We'll see. But that is my fact. Also, 290 is the highway that runs through Worcester, which is the city that we live nearest to. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I see 290, that's what I think about. Me so too. It's a fact that I have to talk about. But anyway, we will include a picture of the Antonov AN-225 in the show notes for this week's show. And now a word from our sponsor. Mm-hmm. During these difficult times, it can be hard to know what you can do to be part of the solution. One of the best things you can do is provide resources for people already doing the kind of work you want to support. But not all charities are created equal. One example used to be the Wounded Warrior Project. They've improved significantly in the past couple of years, but before 2016, they spent around 50% of donations received on overhead, while average veterans charities were spending closer to 10% on overhead. This upset a lot of people because the cause is a worthy one, and to use money meant for wounded vets on parties and advertising and other extravagances is just wrong. There are a lot of charities out there, and some do a better job of putting their money to work than others. If you want to make sure that your donations are being put to good use, you need to do just a little bit of digging. CharityNavigator.org is a really good website for checking on a charity before making a donation. It can even help you find similar charities that may be more worthy of your consideration. If you'd like to have a free conversation to help you understand how to do some due diligence on a charity before making a donation... Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and schedule a free 15-minute phone call. Thanks so much to First Move Financial for sponsoring this episode of the show. All right, at this point in the show, it is time to talk about the games that we've been playing. So what we're going to do, I think, this week is we're actually going to break this up. We're going to talk about the games that we have been playing outside of PAX East, and then second half of the show, we'll talk about the games that we played at PAX East. That's fair. The first half of the show, I think, is going to be very short. Really? 
I have a couple of games. I think I have one. <laughs> really? Wow. All right. Well, um, let's get started. So I uh, had some time where you took the kids somewhere. Archery. I think it was you took the kids to archery. That archery thing, yeah. And I had a friend come over and we played a couple two-player games, which are games that one of them I think that you'll play and be okay with. The other one I think is just like it will make your brain bleed a little bit and I don't think you're going to enjoy it quite as much. Okay. Uh, the first one is Watergate. Is that the one that's going to make my brain bleed? No. Okay. So Watergate is a really interesting game. Obviously, it's based on the Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. In this game, always two players. One player plays as Richard Nixon slash his side. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other player plays as the journalists in general. Woodward and Bernstein are characters in it, but they're not the only ones. Okay. And the entire game is essentially a tug of war on influence and momentum. And sure. so what you're trying to do is the journalist. So the board, it has a like a scale with momentum and influence that kind of swings back and forth that you're always, you know, working back and forth on. But then the other part of the board, which is actually most of the board, is like one of those pin boards where you connect evidence together. Okay. Kind of thing. And as the journalist, you're trying to make connections between Richard Nixon at the middle and at least two informants. Mm -hmm. And if you make those connections, then you win. And it's it's that simple. And Nixon basically is just trying to outlast that. And as the game goes on, the journalists get have a little bit less kind of influence to work on things. And so Nixon tends to get a little bit more powerful as things go on. And, you know, the okay. journalists aren't getting success, which I, I mean, obviously that isn't what happened. But I suppose like that kind of reflects classic power struggles in some way, like the person who's in power over time will win out. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of kind of neat. So it's a really interesting game. When I talked to the folks at Capstone, uh, when they gave this to me for us to review, they said that it was one of the best two-player games that they had ever played. Like, full stop. It's a good two-player game. Okay. I don't know if it quite rises to that level. I mean, we should play a few times and decide. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I enjoy playing it. I enjoy playing it. Probably a little bit more for the subject matter than the core mechanics of the game. That's but, fine. You know, it's still good. So that is Watergate from Capstone Games. So I'm looking at my list, and just because it's been so long, I forgot about the games I played on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so I did play a fair bit on Monday, which was the beginning of our spring vacation for our kids. We played Spot It, finally, um, which... <laughs> I suppose I was there when we played. You Spot were it. you were there when I we was. played Spot It, yep. and I say finally because like I've seen it around and I know generally how it works, and it's just not something our family had sought out because we have so many other games. So I gave our youngest a copy for Easter, and then we played it a bunch. You gave him a waterproof copy. I did because he's that kind of kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, also it was one of the easier copies to find. Yeah, well, that's fine, and it was like a dollar more than the non-waterproof one. Like yeah. it just kind of made sense. Good times with Spot It. I, hey, spot it is great. It's you know observation and matching, so it's good times. All right. Well, the other game that I played, also two player game, also exclusively a two player game, also from Capstone Games. What? Yeah, was Curious Cargo. This is the brain bleeding game. I saw you guys playing this one. Like it's really cool. Mm -hmm. It's got this puzzle aspect of building all of these pipelines, plus. It's not quite a pick up and deliver, but it's got a little bit of that DNA in it. Like, try to get the pipeline to the right place to shoot cargo over to, you know, trucks that go to the other it, side. It's and then more they receive. of like, it's more of a receive and deliver or deliver and receive, I, I, which sounds like it's a semantic thing. But as the shipper, it's, I have zero, I don't care at all if my packages are received. Sure, sure. Uh, however, I do want to be doing work to receive packages from my opponent. Right. So like a pickup and deliver game is you're getting credit you for picking something up, parts. delivering it right, to something right, right. and dropping it off. So like, yes, there certainly is this concept of loading things onto a truck, having them go somewhere and then having them be received or delivered, air quote. But you're not in control of both ends of that. So it's not it's a different thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes me think mostly of the kind of frantic video games where like things are falling from the sky and you're trying to catch them which is not exactly the mechanic here but 
it's got a little bit of that feeling of like, oh, no, how could I possibly manage to keep this from going away? Yeah, I mean, I think that in all of the games of this that I have played so far, I haven't really ascended to the next level strategy of playing trucks onto my opponent's side in order to affect their air quote delivery schedule. Mm. Because when you play a truck, you can play it on either side. Mm. So that's another kind of level to this game that I don't think I've really gotten to yet. I mean, this is a very cerebral game because you're juggling so many things at once. And, you know, I wouldn't say that this is a game that, like, I'm so blown away by its amazingness that, uh, you know, I, I would never challenge its uh, you know authenticity as a top, you know, 10 game yeah. kind of thing ever or anything like that. But I do enjoy it. And it is a good and well-built two-player game. Like, sure. the tension is there where you don't have enough time and materials and action to do all the things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're so wholly dependent on your opponent shipping things without concern for where you're receiving them. So you have to do all of the receiving work yourself, Mm -hmm. including anticipating where those things are going to come from, that it creates a really interesting dynamic where, like, usually there's some kind of a handshake between a ship and and a a receive, right? right? But there totally isn't in this game. And it really, like... It's it's almost like a heavy concept to be like, I need to manage every single part of this. Mm. So that's kind of neat. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's really interesting how the competition of this game is simultaneously linked with what your opponent is doing and also completely separate from what your opponent is doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, really interesting aspect of Curious Cargo. This is not a game that is difficult in terms of the components like there's no reading in this game really the iconography is is fairly clear but the concepts are very heady sure sure so i mean this is it's probably ranked 12 plus or 14 plus or something like that and it is purely because it's a i wouldn't call it a high concept game but like the ideas and the machinations that you have to go through to make this a successful game are just complex and multi-layered that makes sense yeah so that's Curious Cargo, also from Capstone Games. On the opposite end of the spectrum, again... You mean like Spot It? it like Spot It. Yeah. We have played a couple of games of Drop It recently, because Drop we It have. is great. Yeah, I, I didn't mark down any of the stuff that we did on Wednesday night. We played Drop It, and we also played So Clover. Yeah, and both of those games are... Well, So Clover makes my brain hurt a little bit, because you can get two words together and be like, I have no idea how I can possibly tie these together with a one-word clue, or even even like a, you know, one-concept clue. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of soft on that rule in our house, just yeah. because, you know, it's a game, it's for fun. Yeah. So So Clover is definitely a, still a light game, but light doesn't mean easy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I mean... The thing about a game like Soul Clover, like, there's no competition in this game at right, all. Right, right. You know, and everybody's, like, there's definitely a mindset of, like, we're just here to have fun. Right. Which I appreciate. Yeah, me too. We've also been playing a little bit more of The Loop. The review for that should be up when you hear this podcast. That's the plan. That's the plan. I tried the solo mode a couple of times. Basically, I tried the solo mode until I could win a game with the solo mode, <laughs> which took a bunch of tries. I did think that the way of playing it solo was interesting because playing a co-op solo is usually a, oh, well, now I have to control multiple characters and just keep track like, okay, we're going to go around. Now I'm, you know, this person and then then I'm the next person's turn, whatever. And the loop has some of that, but they use an interesting mechanic to help you decide which character's turn it is next instead of it just being a regular rotation, you know, like you would have around a table with two or three players. Instead of that, you draw cards out from your deck and place them on one of the character tiles. Um, So if it's a starting card for that character, it has to go with them. Sure. If it's a artifact you picked up along the way, you decide which character to put it on. And then as soon as a character has three cards, which would be a regular hand, you stop drawing cards, they're going to be the next character you play with. Well, that's interesting. So you can manipulate it so that you use the same character a bunch of times in a row, or more likely, manipulate it so that different symbol cards are going to different characters to make it easier to then perform loops with those sure, symbols. Yeah, 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 right, because you want to have as many cards of the same symbol as possible. When Most of the time, yeah, so you can loop. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So I thought that was a really neat little twist for a, yes, you're still playing as if it's multiplayer when it's solo, but now you've got some interesting decisions in there. It's not just a, I'm going to pretend to be multiple people. Right. I think that makes no sense. That was cool. One last one, which is filler, an old family favorite. And by family, I mean me and Claire. But we did get Asher to play with us, too. I like filler more with more players, but it's very frustrating when you continually feel like you're getting shut out, like you always have the latest time or you're never able to get the recipes that you want. I don't think that's a downfall in the game. I think it's just something to be aware of if that like, oh, hey, we're all going to show up to work at the bakery theme sounds really great to you be aware that filler gets a little bit mean in that way. So if mm. you don't like that meanness, you're better off playing, uh, you know, Kim Joy's Magical Bakery or something like that instead. Sure. I get it. I mean, Kim Joy's is super cute. I mean, also, yes. <laughs> but filler has very realistic illustrations of all of the pastries, which is kind of cool if you're into that sort of thing. Does it make you hungry for pastries? Yes, every time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's going to be it. And we'll take a break and talk about the giant pile of games and game-related stuff that we saw at PAX East. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about what we did and saw at PAX East, for yeah. sure. Yeah, okay. Right. But before we do that, we will welcome our new community members. Oh, that's a great idea. Yes. We should do that. We will. All right. But first, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. This is a snap review for Flip Picks. Flip Picks is a fast-moving card game for two to six players ages six and up. It was invented by Martin Nettergaard Anderson and is published by Amigo. So Andrew, let's talk about the art in this game. I mean, there's art in this game. At first glance, Flip Picks bears a striking resemblance to Spot It. Circular cards, several pictures on them. But in Flip Picks, the images are all roughly the same size and there are letters on the reverse. That's different. How do we play? Well, Amigo promises that their kids' games have five or fewer rules, and this one definitely fits that requirement. Yes, it does. (laughs) Divide up the cards more or less evenly among all the players with a single card on the table to start the game. Flip that one card to the picture side, and everyone tries to find a thing on that card that starts with a letter in their hand. As soon as you find a match, shout out the word... Dragonfly! And put your card letter side up on the table. Now everyone should look in their hands for a picture that could start with one of the available letters. If the match you play includes a red letter, you get to discard an extra card from your hand. Go back and forth, alternating letter cards with picture cards until someone has emptied their hand. That's it. It's very simple. (laughs) So what did we expect from this? Well, given the look of flip picks, especially the round cards, we expected a game that's something like Spot It. And once we saw the letters, I also expected something like Anomia Kids, where you're matching sounds with pictures. Since there are letters, we figured a little bit of reading skill would be required. That would be helpful. But what surprised us about this game? Um, For me, flipping the cards in my hand from pictures to letters and back to pictures really slows me down. I ended up just holding a few cards at a time, so I wasn't trying to leaf through ten or more and flip over the whole stack over and over again. With younger kids, I'd actually suggest laying out cards in two piles in front of them on the table, one with letters and one with pictures. And that's another surprise. Observation skills are not enough. You need to be able to come up with a word that ties together a letter with a picture. And this was kind of surprising. The combination of skills needed means that kids or parents (laughs) who normally aren't good at speed games might do well. Or, in my case, the reverse. What would happen a lot with me is I'd run through three or four cards and then I'd be stuck just, uh, 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 for a really long time. It definitely does get easier as you whittle down your hand of cards because there's less to try to focus on all at once. So, Anitra, do we recommend Flip Picks? Flip Picks is definitely a fun game to play with a family. We had tense moments where everyone stared at their cards, like you mentioned, Uh, But there were also times where the cards were played out fast and furious with lots of back-and-forth action. Since Flip Picks is so small and so fast-moving, it makes for a great game to keep on hand for playing when you have a few minutes of downtime, like at a restaurant. And the letter-picture combinations make it a good way to reinforce early reading decoding skills with younger kids. 
So we did some house rule shifts to keep things a little bit fair when playing with younger kids or players who had a reading disadvantage by maybe giving them fewer cards to start with or playing in a more deliberate, less speedy way. But the goal of the game is to get rid of all the cards in your hand and the first one to do that wins. So that was a really easy way to rule shift for a younger player. It was. You can find flip picks for about $10 either on the Amigo website or at major retailers like Kohl's, Macy's, Barnes & Noble. Speaking of this game, Flip Picks from Amigo, what do you think we should rate this guy? I think we're going to give it four pictures out of five. All right. And that's Flip Picks in, in a, a snap. snap. And we're back. Hello, hello, hello. So we're going to jump right into it. We want to welcome, we have four new members to the Family Gamers community that we would like to welcome before we get into our topic for the show, and I will get it started. Welcome to Chris. Welcome to Little Big Thumbs. Really? I, I mean, really? I thought they were following stuff in our know. community already, but their content is great. They make very adorable videos, <laughs> and you guys should check them out. All right. Well, welcome also to Scott, who I don't know if Scott makes adorable videos or not. I'm just not aware of them. And welcome to Andrew. Andrew, good name, strong name, <laughs> means manly. I like it. <laughs> also, big ups to Andrew for getting right into it in the threads on the welcome post and talking about a bunch of games that he's been playing with his kids and making some recommendations, stuff like that. That is exactly what we want to see in the community so that is super super sweet i never thought i would say this but i want to look at tapeworm he recommended it highly i i don't know gnarly <laughs> so let's talk about pax east yeah so let's do that let's talk okay let's <laughs> this con coverage was a little bit different than just about <laughs> any other con that we have done before so pax east thursday friday saturday sunday yes that's a lot of days of packs. Yes. But that's okay. But it's also school vacation week, and I have a full-time job. Yeah. So what do we do? Well, I don't know what you did on Thursday and Friday, but that's when I went to PAX, and you <laughs> tried to do some work with a house full of children. I did it. I was fine. It, they were good. They were actually pretty they good. They were probably better for you than they were for me. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> uh, and then on Saturday, I was home, and you went. Yes. So we saw a lot of the same people at different times. We did. Yep. But one of the cool things about that is we looked at different games. Yeah. So, I mean, we looked at some of the same games. Mm -hmm. I tried to make you jealous by showing you a picture of playing Birds of a Feather in the flesh. Mm -hmm. That game is really cool. And I really like it. And I yes. really, really want cards in my hand now <laughs> well we'll get it and then you know, i know once the eventually closes you know we'll have an opportunity to even play it digitally so we'll be okay eventually i suppose <laughs> you'll have to survive i learned it on thursday morning and then i showed it to people like three more times and also directed a bunch of people over to that booth of like hey you should look at this game it's really cool yeah i mean when i swung by the Snowbright booth it was packed Almost every time. So a lot of people were interested in the game. I think that they're going to get a significant bump. I mean, not like an insane bump, but I think they're going to get a bump from the show. It's great. And it's only yeah. $20. Yeah. So. so something I had not been aware of with the Paxes, Paxen, I don't know. Pa I think Paxes, Paxes works. Is that they have this area of the tabletop free play area that's called First Look. Yeah, I mean, that's always been a thing. They've always had that even when it was just video games. Like, they had first look for, you know, some games in development, stuff like that. But first look for games in development makes me think, like, the Unpub, which is a different thing. But Unpub is very much a tabletop thing. Right. Unpub is a tabletop thing where it's like a, hey, please come try my prototype. Yeah, so first look for tabletop is basically brand new games that have just come out, for the most part. Or things that aren't available in the U.S. but might be at some point. Yeah, that too. Or like games that are pretty much done development. They're just not out yet. Like yeah. Unpub is really for like games in active development. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So I kind of wandered over to the first look area because I had seen the big list of games that was going to be there. And I was like, oh, that I've always wanted to see that one. And that one sounds interesting, that one. So I tried a bunch of games there. Okay. What'd you try? Um, so I'm going to tell you about those. So one of the first ones I tried is a game called Rise of the Metro. Rise of the Metro is an abstract kind of a route building game. Three or four players are building metro, you know, like subway routes mm -hmm. around a city grid. It was really cool, but the rulebook was really awful. 
<laughs> okay. It's just, it is what it is. Sure. But it was a neat, very, very abstract game. It's one of those where, like, the stations are wooden discs and the metro routes are just little wooden sticks sure. of various colors. Sure. It's very Euro-y. Very Euro. It was neat, but figuring out the scoring from the subpar rulebook was very hard. Once we finally got it, it made sense. Basically, your idea is you want to build the best metro possible. So even though you're competing with the other routes on the board, you do want to connect up with them because every station that serves multiple different color routes is worth more for all of the colors that go through it. Okay. So the best way to get points is to have a few stations that just use service and then try to hit all of the high traffic stations everywhere else, if you can. Okay. Sure. That makes sense. So it was neat. Well, I'm going to talk about a game that I got to play that you saw or heard about or talked about or whatever, but didn't even know was there. So you said you tried to make me jealous with all the birds of a feather. I made you jealous because I got a chance to play The Gig. I am so jealous. <laughs> so the gig is this really interesting game. It's from Brain Crack Games. It says on the front, the dice game of improvisation and smooth strategy. So in the gig, everybody is playing as a different instrument. I played, unsurprisingly, as the saxophone. Saxophone. Mm-hmm. But what's also happening is there's a stack of six songs in the middle of the table ostensibly everybody is playing together they're playing the song Mm -hmm. so everybody has a set of four dice and like i said there are six rounds so you're going to end up with a grand total of 24 die faces at the end of this thing so everybody's instrument is laid out a little bit differently with all these kind of circles on it you kind of have an outline of your instrument and this almost like graph of circles on your instrument inside the silhouette and all of those circles inside your instrument have either icons like spotlight icons or different colored icons which relate to something else or like multipliers or points or every instrument has one special ability and there might be an icon that relates to that special ability so as you're playing the game i mentioned that there's these common songs Mm-hmm. The songs have rows, one, two, three, four, five, six. So you're rolling four D6s. As you roll them, everybody's rolling at the same time, and it's kind of like speed rolling. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to place the dice on the song across the rows in a way that makes a pattern that you can then lift and apply onto the grid that is in the silhouette of your instrument. Okay, wow. It's pretty straightforward. Like, And you can flip it, and you can you know invert it and smash yeah, it yeah. and stuff like that. So like all that stuff is fine. And so what happens is everybody's rolling until somebody places their last die and then nobody can roll anymore. You can still place those dice, but you cannot re-roll them anymore. Okay. On the songboard are a lot of the same kinds of icons that you might see inside your instrument, like the spotlight or all the different colored things. You're obviously not going to have your special power stuff because those are instrument specific. Mm -hmm. And then if you have dice that you can't fit into any pattern that might be advantageous, you can stick them kind of there's like a collection thing kind of off on the right called the harmonize stuff. So it's just kind of a way to salvage some points out of some dice that you can't use otherwise. But the point here is that you're using the main song to create shapes that you then apply to your instrument silhouette. And it kind of becomes a little bit, not really worker placement, nor is it action selection, but you're definitely blocking out other people's dice because say you need to do like a T shape in Tetris, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And you have kind of the L part of it, and you need the one thing that's lower. Like, say you you, you got a thing on six, you've got two things on five, and you need a thing on four to complete the T. Yeah. And you're rolling, and you're rolling, and you're rolling, and somebody else puts their die right there, and you're like, and you can't do it. Sure, sure. It is what it is, right? You just you can't. So there's definitely some blocking going on as part of the simultaneous roll. Mm-hmm. But the rule book has variants for like turn-based or like a little bit less insane. Because sure. you could make the argument that it's like you roll a die, you decide whether you want to place it or not. And whatever you decide, if you decide to place it, you place it. And if you decide not to place it, it goes to the next person's turn. And you just go around and around. And obviously, sure, it's going to sure, take sure. longer. But if you've got a child that is not really good at the speed roll, speed decision-making thing, 
thing, mm, of which we mm. have at least one, yep. something like this is a really good option. And it really doesn't affect the fabric of the game all that much. Just going to slow it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you do all this stuff. And after six rounds, it's kind of this point salad thing where all the different icons that you've collected, you know, you've, you've kind of tallied them up on your board and majority wins to get extra points and stuff like that. And that's the gig. It was fun. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I pulled it up on BGG and it says 2023, but like the game seemed pretty much finished. So I'm not really sure what's going on with that. I don't know, man. Yeah, but it's on BGG. So you can pull it up and look at it at least. Cool. So I know I am going to mess up the name of this next game that I saw in first look. I'm warning you because the name of it is in Japanese. It does not have an English name. It is something like Yojohan Pepa Seike. I am sure I butchered that. I apologize. I do not speak Japanese at all. <laughs> but this was one from the very first time I saw it. I was like, the box lid is sort of the outline of a person lying down on the floor surrounded by polyominoes. <laughs> okay. And it's a roll and write game. Okay. Okay, sure. So in this game, you're basically playing as a Japanese boy, young man, in his room, and you're coloring in shapes on the five tatami mats that are on the floor of his room, representing five different aspects of his life. So the green shapes represent friends. The purple shapes represent hobbies. The blue shapes represent doing his schoolwork. The red shapes represent love. And the yellow shapes represent money through like part-time jobs and allowance and stuff like that. Sure. It's one of those where you're never going to be able to fill the whole thing. This is not like patchwork or something where if you did it just right, you might be able to cover every single square. Uh There's no chance that you're going to cover every single square. But you'll get bonuses for covering every square on one of the mats or making sure that blue, your education, is not neglected by making sure it is not the smallest color area represented in any of the five mats. Stuff like that. How the shapes are determined is one of those things where you have a layout of cards where each card has a different polyamino shape on it. Mm-hmm. And then you roll the dice and you line them up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six goes in front of the discard pile, which is just your simple two square shape. So you have some idea what shapes are going to be available to you. But, you know, if you roll a bunch of sixes and a one, those are your choices are those two shapes. And you can only, you know, you always have to match the color dye with the shape to get that color shape. So it was really fun. I really liked it. I don't personally think this is ever a game that's going to have an actual, like, U.S. version or U.S. release because there were too many things about it that were oddly Japanese. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, like, it's tatami mats and then this whole idea of, like, the polyomino shapes are personifications of various parts of this kid's life. I mean, that's life. just a retheme, though. Like, that's not a big I, deal. Maybe. I mean, it sounds fairly abstract. It, it was fairly abstract, but because of the way that the personifications tie in with the scoring, it made it way easier to remember how the scoring worked. So, like, purple was hobbies. Hobby squares score only if they're adjacent to green, which is friends. You want to play your hobbies with your friends. Okay. Sure. Yellow is money because Japanese yen, like the coin yen, are yellow. And red is love and scores points for shapes that are identical to the red shapes in your mat. Okay. Stuff like that. So it was really neat. I'm really glad that I got a chance to play it. I went back and played it again later because I was like, that scratched an itch. And the very first time I played it, I had a negative score. And I'm like, that's... (laughs) No, I can do better than that. I will never do worse than this. So I had a lot of fun with it. Well, one nice thing about PAX East specifically is that it has both board games and video games. Yes. And I did take a little bit of time to go over to the video game area and see if there was some stuff that didn't have gigantic lines that I could play. Because I just, I really learned today that I just don't have the appetite to wait in a line for the privilege of playing a video game like that. I'm just not at all interested in that. We are not in that season of life anymore. Right. And one game that I actually did stumble upon that looked fairly cute and I thought I might give it a try is a game called Way of Rhea. Okay. R-H-E-A. Way of Rhea. And this is a side-scrolling puzzle adventure game. The demo was a 
pre-alpha build. So it was like the intro adventure and like the first section of the first world of which there are four. Okay. This was a really interesting, clever puzzle game. And it's like a puzzle platformer, basically. The story is weird you're just a weird guy with like a staff that changes different colors depending on the gem that you put in it kind of thing but it had really really interesting puzzles in it and i mean i've talked about this before the guy that was at the booth was the guy who made the game and i really you are a big fan of that i'm a huge fan of that we got to talking about technical stuff and programming languages and you know all that kind of thing because that's what i do for real It was really, really interesting. There is a demo that is available on Steam. If you are a video gamer, we will include the link in the show notes to this game. The demo is, of course, free. It's very cute. I really recommend you check it out if you like puzzle platformy kind of stuff. Way of Rhea. Played fairly well. Cool. Mm -hmm. So I also did something at PAX that I have never done before. I entered a tournament. Oh, Very fun. So I entered the Thursday night throwdown tournament. Uh, Okay. (laughs) They did not tell you what games you would be playing. They just said, if you enter this tournament, you will be playing several. I think they eventually indicated it would be four lightweight tabletop games. So I met some fun people. I was with the same table of people as the games rotated through our group. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I got to play two games that I had wanted to play and hadn't had a chance to before. Nice. One that was brand new to me and I knew nothing about. And one that I was very familiar with and taught to the rest of my table. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the one I taught was King Domino Origins. (laughs) Know it, love it. Which I started off with an explanation of, you know, it's just like King Domino, but, and then I was like, have you all played King Domino? They're like, no. All right, let me back up. (laughs) But we played the most basic version of King Domino Origins, which was fun. And I knew I did a good job teaching it because I did not come in first place. (laughs) All right. But the other games we played, we got to play Riverside, which is a roll and write game that I think Jeremy Howard was telling us yes, about a couple of months ago. Yes, recommended it to us a few months ago. I had walked over and seen it at the first look area. Yeah, I saw it there today. And the rule book just seemed dense. So I was like, mm, maybe later. And then it came up during this tournament sure. and we all had to figure out how to play it. Okay. Riverside is neat. It's very, very fast moving, which you would not expect from the way it looks. The sheet is fairly big. You've got these five different colored boats that you're trying to fill in with passengers. And then there's a central board with a little cruise ship boat that moves around Mm -hmm. it. Yep. But the main thing about Riverside is that you're rolling this handful of dice and then all of the dice that are higher than the median value go into like the hot zone, which you take a penalty to play those dice. Mm -hmm. So if you roll a lot of low numbers, the game goes really slowly. If you roll a lot of high numbers, the boat moves that median number every time. So if you have a lot of high numbers, like, great, we can fill up our boats, but also the boat is now two thirds of the way around the board. Oh no, the game's almost over. So I liked that aspect of it, but having played it two or three times now, it's fine. Given a choice, I would probably rather play Fleet or Three Sisters. Man, just... I tell you what, those Motor City Gameworks games. Yes! Crushing it! Well, and part of it was that Riverside had just a little bit of comboing, and it was just enough to kind of whet my appetite, <laughs> and then there wasn't a, there wasn't very much comboing. There was all these other things you had to kind of take into consideration. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'd rather play lots of combos, so... If I want something even lighter, I play Super Mega Lucky Box, which sure. is all about the combos. Yep, it is. Yeah. It is. So Riverside was fine. It was a neat theme of this glacier-bound river cruise. <laughs> but I also got to play Fafnir, which is an Oink Games game that I did actually see at PAX Unplugged the last time I was there in 2019. But I didn't get to play it, and I wasn't entirely sure how it played. Fafnir is a game that is all about bidding on a chicken laying eggs. <laughs> it is ridiculous. From a company named Oink. Yes. Okay. So it's in that tiny little Oink, Oink box. box. Yep, yep, yep. And every player gets a screen to hide their eggs behind. And then there's sort of a central display that is the eggs that have been spent out already. It's basically the trash pile. Mm-hmm. Well, 
you can keep them all behind one screen, but just don't put them all in one basket. Exactly. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so in Fafnir, the chicken keeper puts out some new eggs on the chicken, and then everybody pulls eggs from behind their screen to bid on it. And the highest bid, they trash all of the ones that they bid and take the eggs off the chicken instead. Everybody else takes their eggs back. The reason why this is important is because when you reach a certain amount of stuff in the trash pile, everybody then reveals what they have. The egg color that there is the most of around the table ends up being worth three points per egg. The egg color that there's the second most of is one point per egg. Every other color of egg is negative one point for it. Oh, that's egg. gross. And there's a few more, you know, finer points beyond that, but that's the basics of the game there. So you're like, oh, there's already a ton of, you know, yellow out in the trash pile. I'm going to take all of the yellow that is behind my screen here. And use it for bidding. And use it for bidding yeah. so I can get rid of it because yeah, it's probably going to be negative less points. Eggs back. Right. It's still worth it because you're... Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So... That was way more fun than I expected it to be at first. And I love that oink profile of, you know, this was a four-player game with bidding and a ton of little pieces, but you could fit it in your pocket. You know, I I really, I love oink games because they really defy the logic of you need to have a certain amount of shelf presence for your game to be a successful seller. The one time I've seen their games at Target, which was Deep Sea Adventure... It was about three times the size. Yes, I am aware that they did a repackaging, but like what they usually do, or at least unless I'm insane and remembering something wrong, is that they've got like a little shelf kit, which is like three oink games wide that you'll see at like a Barnes and Noble on yeah. one of the smaller shelves. And so the presence is accomplished by having three games of the same form factor with together wildly yeah. different colors together, right? So I just kind of appreciate that about their games. Well, and I think a lot of more really serious board gamers appreciate that, too. It's like, oh, hey, but this is a party game that fits in my pocket. Right. You know, like, just one is great, but it's not small. Mm. You know, wavelength is great, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. a production to bring it with me and set it up. Yeah. Fafnir is going to fit in my pocket, and it's a four-player silly bidding game. A Fake Artist Goes to New York is, like, up to 10 players. Yeah, if the stupid markers work. If the markers work. <laughs> <laughs> so really, really enjoy that game. The last one that I played as part of the tournament was called Somnium Rise of Laputa. Basically just Somnium. Okay. It's one of these influence type games where you're playing out court members in front of you. It's cards. It's just a card game. You're playing out court members in front of you but it's got a target influence. When somebody gets up to the target influence, the game immediately ends. Okay. It's a little bit like a love letter or something where almost every card you play does something. Maybe to you, maybe to somebody else. You know, make people yeah, yeah. lose influence, make people yep. gain influence, whatever. So it kind of felt to me like love letter if love letter had a full deck of like 52 cards. Okay. Rather than nine. Our game with four players went really, really long, but it always felt like, oh, we're almost there. This might be it. And a lot of kind of sabotaging each other. And it was neat. It probably would not go over well in our family, but it was a lot of fun. Sure. Well, I mean, either you enjoy deduction games or you don't, like social deduction games, right? But this was mostly not a deduction game. There's a little bit of like, oh, somebody must have this card, and if they play it, if I can make them discard it, I'll be in good shape. But it was mostly a, like, you have multiple cards in your hand. So you do have a choice of what to play. It's not like you're a character and you're hiding it. Right. Okay, sure. And it's a combination of character cards and event cards that get played out. So it was this back and forth of, you know, like, oh, well, I now have a ton of guys in front of me, but everybody else has been playing cards that make me lose influence without losing these people. So it looks like I'm doing really well, but then you check my token pile and I'm like, I have three influence and 10 people in front of me. Right. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So yeah, it was neat. I would probably seek that one out again, although I'm not sure if it would be great for family play. I think it's the kind that might result in hurt feelings. Well, Speaking of games that are not particularly good for family play, but I thought they looked great. Did you see Pampero or Pompero? 
Oh, I did. And I also watched at a distance as somebody taught it. And it took them half an hour just to do the teach and start getting into the first round. And I was like, that is not a Family Gamers game right there. It's not. It's totally not. So Pompero is made by Julian Pombo. Artwork by Eno Tool. It is a game about the Pompero, which is a wind system above Uruguay or Ecuador. I don't remember. It was definitely somewhere in South America. South America. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like the El Nino of South America. And what has happened historically is a lot of the countries have leased a lot of that land to energy farmers or to other countries who have put windmills windmills on that property which makes a lot of sense this is a modern windmill game yes what you're essentially doing is you're kind of it's like the economically responsible power grid I mean, <laughs> okay that, that's yeah. what this is yeah so this gentleman who made the game is kind of a disciple of vitalicerda okay and that's why the game is what the game is sure sure yeah yeah it's a very complex engine builder with lots of moving parts and i really really wanted to play it Looks great, but it's That's already fair. getting buzzed and it's not even hitting Kickstarter until October. Wow. So that okay. is Pompero. Um, what else can I say? I taught a whole bunch of people Magic Mountain because that was also in the first look area. Yep. Yep. And every time that I was doing something else and somebody walked over and started trying to read through the rules to Magic Mountain, I was like, I was nah, like, bro, it's too nah, 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 nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you how this plays in 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, so really weird. Like, Amigo didn't bring games to sell. I don't know if they brought... They didn't bring Magic Mountain to sell. It looked like they had some other games to sell, uh, but they didn't was, have any Magic Mountain. It's very Mountain. strange. I don't really yeah. understand that. But that game is a hit. I mean, like... It's so good. Every, but, but, like, I was standing there talking to the folks at Amigo, and multiple people came up and said, can I buy this game, please? Yes. And they're like, I'm sorry, no. Yes. And I'm like, oh, I'll sell you my copy. But, but <laughs> Go no, use it's, our it's affiliate a great, link for Amazon. <laughs> it's a great game. It's really fun. And a lot of adults were going to get it, even though it's an incredibly simple game. And I think that says a lot. For adults, it's kind of a turn your brain off and just enjoy yourself for, you know, five to ten minutes game. Yeah. Which is fine. Sometimes that's what you want. Speaking of a similarly, like, 15 minutes of fun game, your sister and some of her friends grabbed me and they're like, hey, we're going to play a game. Come play with us. I was like, okay. And what they had grabbed was... P for pizza from Big Potato Games. Oh, no. It's a word association game, category game. Okay. The conceit is just that everybody is kind of building their scoring pizza slice separately. And where you are in the pizza slice determines which level of question or which level of category you're actually looking at. So in the beginning, everybody's looking at the easy ones. But when you get partway through, some people are still stuck on easy and other people are looking at like the medium categories. Uh So you needed five easy triangles and then three medium triangles and then one hard triangle. And once you have all of those, you have a slice of pizza and you win the game. It was a silly word category game. And we all, you know, yelled at each other a bunch while we were playing it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, sometimes you just need to unload like that, right? Yup. All right, well, why don't I talk about the last game on my list that I played at PAX, and then we can talk about maybe some stuff that we saw that we didn't play, but like stuff that was really cool. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So the last game that I played was a kind of a game that I'm almost a little bit embarrassed that I hadn't played before. It's a game from Lucky Duck Games, and it is called It's a Wonderful World. I didn't really know anything about this game. I didn't know literally what kind of mechanics it was, anything. And I was having a conversation with one Derek Funkhauser uh, about how I needed to play more engine builders. And so he just started like listing off games and It's a Wonderful World was on the list. And so we sat down to play It's a Wonderful World. We played a four player game of it. This is a really interesting game. It is an engine builder. It is a very straightforward engine builder. Everybody starts by getting uh, seven cards dealt out to them. So it's a four round game. You know, you look at the cards and they're all some kind of card that has a cost to actually construct Mm -hmm. or it has a discard value. So if you discard it, you get something or it might have either an income. So during the income phase, you would get something once it's built or an an immediate effect at construction time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what the cards look like. And so it's the classic, you know, you take one, you pass the hand. 
And then you go around and everybody drafts a tableau of seven cards that everybody can see. And then you select from those seven cards which ones you want to attempt to construct and which ones you want to discard. So you discard the ones you want to discard. They all give you some resources. And then you go through this phase where you are collecting resources of all the different types of resource that are available in the game, of which there are, I think, five different kinds of resources. Okay. So you get those and you can allocate those to things to try to construct them. And then you go through and you do the whole thing again and then again and then again. And that's the whole game. So it's very like, kind of simple, straightforward engine builder. It was a little clunky yeah. to get started because literally nobody at the table had played it before. Right. But after one turn, it was like, oh, we got this. There's a lot of smart iconography in the game, which kind of makes it a little bit easy to miss things. But once you know what you're looking for, it's very easy and very straightforward. I mean, this is a game that our 11-year-old would love. Sure. It's that whole engine kind of feeling and just getting more familiar with the cards because there are a ton of cards in this game. It supports up to five players, but it also has a two-player variant and a solo mode. So it kind of covers all the bases. It's a wonderful world. I came in third out of four. Okay. But uh, one player, the guy who came in last, like, you know how you said it looked like you were doing really well, but in reality, you weren't doing really well when talking about that other game because you had Mm -hmm. all those characters. He had a great engine, but... It didn't translate into points. Yeah. It translated into being a great engine. Yeah. Just a so. lot of fun to like, ooh, this does this, and this does this, and this does this. And- yeah, I mean, that It's a Wonderful World doesn't really have that kind of combo deal like that, but he had a great system where he could basically draft any of the cards in his hand and figure out how to generate the appropriate resources to construct that thing, whatever it was. Mm. It was just a really smart sure. engine that he had put together. Sure. So. But first place had 61 points, and that guy ended up with 25 points. So... Pretty big discrepancy. Okay. All right. You want to talk about some stuff we saw? I do want to talk about some stuff I saw. Okay. Top of the list, I feel like I have to mention, we saw tea at Snowbright. You don't say. (laughs) And you got to play Bird of the Feather in the Flesh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of opened this half of the show with that. It was cool. I liked it. I will say that ever since we had tea on the show, they mentioned the availability of the app. And they sent me a test flight code for Birds of Feather, and I have been playing the solo mode quite a bit. Yes, you have. (laughs) And it is excellent. It's really fun. So what else can I tell you about? Something that I saw that I don't think you did was Nomnivore Games and their super cute card game that is called Snack Attack. Okay. Talk to me. So... I actually took a video of one of the developers of Snack Attack explaining it on the show floor, and I put that video up on TikTok because she did it in just under a minute. All right. Good for her. It was kind of amazing. It's a super light little game where we are all playing as these nomnivore dinosaur babies who want to go get plates full of food. It starts with four empty plates. We play cards out from our hand. Some of them are food that gets put on the plates. Some of them are the, like, I'm going to steal this plate, cute dinosaur. And then some are sabotage cards in one way or another. Like, oh, I made this plate bitter, so now you don't want it anymore. But you can fix bitter with spicy or with candy or something like that. It was really cute. There's also a mom card where mom makes you take one of your plates and put it back on the table where everybody can can have it. You're not sharing well. And there's a uh, family dog as well. He doesn't make you share your plate. He eats everything off of your plate. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And then the empty plate goes back on the table. So it was really cute. Apparently designed with ADD in mind. But because of that, it is all super clear symbology and no reading. Cool. So that was really cute and funny. I also really, really liked what I saw of Smug Owls from Runaway Parade. The fact that you could come up with a card engine, basically, to build riddles is amazing. I love it. It's so cool. Did you get a chance to actually play around with it or just saw it being played? Just, I mean, like a round or two, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Ugh, it looks so cool. It was fun. Just a, a couple of us standing around and like, okay, we reveal a couple of cards to make a new riddle. And then, you know, everybody kind of put their hand down on the table when they had a riddle. And the last person left who hadn't come up with one yet becomes the judge for that round. We all give our answer to the given riddle and the judge decides. And at least very quickly then, it was always super clear because one person's answer would have 
everybody laughing. It wasn't always the same person, but it's like, obviously, if everybody's laughing, you have won the riddle. Right. Okay, sure. So, yeah. Such a neat concept and so smart. I really like the stuff that Sam and Gwen are putting together. They do a really great job. I also saw Decorum. We've talked about this game a little bit. This is from Floodgate. This is one of their newest releases. Yeah. This is the game of passive, aggressive interior decorating. (laughs) So when I first saw this, people talking about it online, I was like, what do you mean? Like passive aggressive house decorating? What? But I got a chance to play through the first two player level. So this has got a little bit of a campaign type feel to it that I guess the levels build on each other a little bit, the puzzles. Yeah, so the box actually has different sets of missions or scenarios for two-player, three-player, and four-player. Yeah. So they all come in envelopes, so they're all kind of handcrafted or hand-put together. Yeah. Which is good because... The way the game plays out, like you would not ever want to end up in an unwinnable scenario if it was right. you know, really programmatically generated. Right. So that's why they put it together this way. So it makes sense. These are constructed puzzles. It's not done randomly. Right. But the one big downfall to the game I see is that if you play strictly by the rules, all you're allowed to say when somebody else makes a change is, I love it, I hate it, or I don't really care. It is way more fun if you make it be like, a yellow lamp? How dare you put a yellow lamp in this room? <laughs> you know, or even it's just like, you want a yellow lamp there? I, it's fine, I guess. How about just, all right. Right. Or Claire's, meh. Right, exactly. So like putting some context in there without- Personality. Putting some personality yeah, in there. Without giving away what your requirements are makes it way more fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a really clever idea. It's a unique thing. Yeah. It feels a little gimmicky to me. Well, especially since it's, like we said, it's they're constructed puzzles. So you're going to play a bunch of it and then you're going to be done. You will have run your way out. I mean, I feel like once you go there. through 20 or 25 puzzles, you could probably like pick one at random and you won't necessarily remember because it's the same four sure, elements. Sure. You know what I mean? So I'm not super worried about that, but you're not wrong. Yeah. But it is a really neat idea. Mm-hmm. And looking at the artwork in the game, I thought it was really clever that, I mean, I was referring to it by colors, but it's not really a color-coded game except for the paint on the walls. Everything else, it's actually done through symbols and it indicates like this is, you know, modern or this is rare or this is retro, you know, styled. Mm-hmm. And the styles represented there go along with what they're supposed to be. And of the four antique style paintings, they all look a little different. Mm. You know, the four retro lamps all look a little different. It's kind of neat. Yeah. So cool idea. It sounds like all they're selling now is the deluxe copy, which has the acrylic stuff in it instead of the cardboard stuff. So that's nice. It's a nice. That was nice too. Yeah. As well. So what else? Well, another game that I made a TikTok video for is Top Trump's Match. So the way this was explained to me, and I like the explanation, is it's like a cross between Battleship and Connect Four. You are trying to make a line of five matching symbols or characters or whatever. On your side of the board, you cannot see what your opponent has on their side of the board. But the thing is that what you're actually putting in are cubes. You put a cube in, which pushes a cube out on your opponent's side. Then they pick up that cube, figure out what side they want and where they want it, and push a cube through to your side. So it's this constant back and forth. And you can have some idea of where your opponent's going, but probably not what they're putting there. Mm -hmm. Certainly simple enough for any kid who's ready to move on from, you know, your standard Connect Four. And... It cleans itself up. (laughs) The board thing that holds it is also the carrying case. So you basically just put the last cube back in, close up the sides, and you're done. No cleanup. I like it a lot. Yeah. So we actually got a copy of that in for review. Expect to hear more about it in the next couple months. All right. Speaking of games for review, you mentioned the, the match game. We also got a copy of Pavlov's Dogs from Ninth Level Games. Uh, this is a game that they released right at the beginning of the pandemic, and so it just hasn't had 
the ability to get publicized. So we're going to take a look at that. That also is going to be coming in the next few months, probably sometime over the summer. Okay, cool. Let's see. What do you think? Lightning round? We'll talk about some people we saw. Just little shout outs. Then we can close up the show. Sure. Let's do that. All right. So you mentioned that we saw the folks at Runaway Parade. Yep. Sam Gwen and Gwen. Sam. Uh, and then right next to them was Jim Fitzpatrick, Mission to Planet Hex. Which has, you know, real, like, retail presence, good boxes, <laughs> an expansion, all kinds of great stuff. stuff. And when I saw him, Jim was getting his uh, his tail kicked by somebody he had just taught the game, awesome. which was, which was great. It. I got a chance to see Derek Funkhauser from now with Wise Wizard Games, so that was kind of fun. Yeah, I did. I did not see him, even though he is tall enough, I should be able to spot him even across a crowded convention hall. <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. You're not wrong. Uh, obviously, we saw T. Mentioned T. Mentioned T. Uh, let's see. Who else did we see? We saw Nora at Game we Right. We did see Nora. She was hustling as usual. As usual, she is just amazing, and I know she loves doing conventions, and it's just. It's just great to see her. I saw some other amazing folks at Game Right and, uh, you know, reminded them that they make awesome games. <laughs> and they sure do. They are great for families. Uh, we saw Jess Cassidy from Ion Games. And that's where we saw things like the gig and the windmill game with the name that I can't remember. Stuff like that. <laughs> yep. And a few more games that we're going to get to talk about more in the summer and yeah, fall, I think. Yeah, we got I some think. stuff coming. We've been planning some content we are excited to talk yeah. about some of this stuff but we can't talk about it yet so sorry <laughs> i saw andrew innes from anomia games yeah and there's a new anomia coming out there will be a new anomia probably this fall pop culture just in case you did not have enough pop culture in your anomia <laughs> like wwe wrestlers you can have an entire deck dedicated yeah we actually got to talking and you know we were talking about anomia versus Dupal and the relative success of either one and i was like you know you could do a really interesting experiment just release anomia letters and just have it be Dupal and just see if it sells better because it's because the name recognition i mean maybe so, yeah know, whatever but um yeah always a pleasure to talk to him and really all of the people that we just mentioned you know, it, PAX East is not a big show for us, per se, right. but it's nice to be able to have a little bit more flexibility to sit down and play some games and talk to some people that we know and stuff like that. So it was a really good time. It's really fun. To anyone who's thinking about going to something like PAX East in the future, since I hadn't been at PAX East in like seven years, I'm going to say a few things that I was not really expecting until I got there. Sure. Really good sized tabletop free play area with... Almost the whole same board game library that they bring to PAX Unplugged. I think it actually is the same uh, library. There's a little bit that gets held out, I think, but most of it is the same. There was an entire Magic the Gathering area. That part didn't surprise me, but then I saw that they had tournaments set up as well as just a kind of a free play thing and giant buckets of free land. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> land station mm -hmm. there were all kinds of small-scale role-playing games going on right next to the magic the gathering area and some of them you didn't even need to sign up for in advance so that is something that i think would probably attract a lot of people and of course all the video game stuff but we knew that they had food trucks inside this year. They did, but I didn't bother going to any of the inside food trucks because yeah, the lines were super long. The lines were long at the outside food trucks, too. But When I went to the outs outside yeah, whatever. food trucks, whatever. Uh, the lines were long. Sadly, I did not go to any panels, which I normally would do for a PAX, but Thursday and Friday did not have a whole lot that I was interested in. I didn't even look at a guidebook at all. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Fair. So, I couldn't even tell you what I missed. For anyone thinking about doing any packs in the future this is the first time i ever actually went to the site where they say register your packs badge that lets you scan at all kinds of places enter contests play silly games now that i know i will definitely be doing that again big ups to excedrin who had a booth <laughs> yes <laughs> And they were giving away bottles of Excedrin. They were a major sponsor of PAX East. They were awesome. They Their booth was great. <laughs> Acknowledgement that we are not all teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. And that pretty much, I think, is our PAX East experience this year. Yeah, there were more games I played, but most of them I had played before. And it was just about the experience of being able to sit down and play games with people again, yes. which, which was, was great. Nice. It was nice. Yeah. So that... 
that's the show. And welcome. I know we had some new Twitter followers. I assume we're going to have some new podcast listeners as well from all the people that we talked to this I mean, weekend. I hope so. <laughs> so welcome to uh, you know all of our social media and to the podcast. And we are glad to have you. We hope that you enjoyed us recounting our tales of PAX East this year. But where are all those places where people can find us online if they're starting to follow us? Well, we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Family Gamers AA. Mm-hmm. You can also find us on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash the Family Gamers. You can also join the community and we will welcome you in two weeks by going to thefamilygamers.com slash community or search for The Family Gamers on Facebook. Or you can always just reach out to us directly. You can email me, Andrew, at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. Check out our new Family Gamers and Play Games with Your Kids and... A Balanced Life. A Balanced Life merchandise, t-shirts, hoodies, and more at thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you liked what you heard. Tell your friends about the podcast and... Please, please, please leave us a review, especially at Apple Podcasts, but other places too. It is one of the best ways for new listeners to find us. Mm -hmm. Especially text reviews, not just like star rating things. I mean, they're both helpful, but yeah. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. Anitra, next week, Beyond Board Games. Yes, I'm excited. Great episode. Oh, it's going to be so good. It's such a great episode. I had a ton of fun doing this interview, and I really think that everybody is going to enjoy it. But don't worry, everybody, that's going to come soon. So until then, play Play games with your kids. kids.